gods, and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. When you're thinking about growing a company, you probably think about making a product that works, hiring the best people, or marketing the hell out of your work. But what you might not think about is you. That's why today I'm talking with Jerry Colonna, a longtime executive coach who's helped a range of leaders, including Chad Dickerson from Etsy, Rand Fishkin from Moz, and Alex Bloomberg from Gimlet Media. His advice sits at the intersection of career and life, and you definitely don't need to head a million-dollar company to learn from it. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. So, Jerry, you work a lot with executives who have come to some sort of a crossroads. They're struggling in one way or another. When you first sit down with a struggling executive, what do you do? Well, the first question I'll ask is, what is it they want? What is the outcome that they want? Oftentimes, they actually haven't even given thought to what it is that they would like to see happen. They're just um, kind of stuck. Yeah. And so just uh, reaching down and sort of saying, well, what would not being stuck look like can oftentimes really open things up for them. And as you start to have that conversation, are they able to answer it right off the bat? How long does it take to get to the answer to that question? Oh, it completely varies. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, you know, in coaching, we, we, we often speak about what's known as the presenting agenda, which is, you know, I come in and I have my notebook and I, gotta, I have to figure out if I want to stay in this job. Yeah. And oftentimes the presenting gender has nothing whatsoever to do with the real agenda. The real agenda is I have to figure out who I am and what I want to do with my life. Um, and once I understand that, then the answer to the presenting problem becomes very, very clear. That makes a ton of sense. How do you get someone to move away from what is a very concrete presenting agenda to those deeper questions? Magic. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, good questions. Uh, it varies from person to person. Some yeah. people are really disconnected with a sort of inner sense of self. Some people have immediate access to it and, and are able to get there. It sort of varies. Um, what a good coach will do is um, just sort of feel their way through yeah. um, by asking a set of what are known as open, honest questions, questions that are not intended to derive to a particular gender point, but really designed to help the client open themselves up. Is your sense, how do people find you? How do they get to the point where they decide they need to look Jerry Kalana up? Magic, again, <laughs> uh, the magic of SEO, I guess. <laughs> you know something um, about that. No, I'm, I'm teasing. I mean, I think that the number one way in which people find a coach is actually uh, word of mouth. Yeah. You know, you go out to, to dinner with a friend and she says to you, you know, I had this amazing conversation with this person. And you say, well, that's funny because I'm going through something similar. Who are you talking to? And then there's, of course, you know, the magic of 
press and sure. uh, interviews and that sort of thing. But you, but but the primary way to find a good coach is actually word of mouth, is to ask friends. Yeah, it's really interesting because that feeling of struggling, of you know, not doing well, it can be a very isolating and lonely feeling, and you know being able to recognize that you're not alone in this or that other people go through it and ask, ask the question about, you know, who can I talk to about this, I imagine is a breakthrough in and of itself. I, I completely agree with you. I think that just getting to the point of having a conversation with somebody else where you're sharing the fact that you have questions and you're not sure what you want to do or you are unsure about how to do your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, that takes a certain amount of vulnerability itself. That's a risk. Um, but the reward to doing that is actually not just finding a coach, but actually finding a companion in that process. Yeah. So I imagine that you didn't always start with this as your primary business. Tell me a little bit about your path to found Reboot. Well, you know, just imagine that we're we're doing a flashback and all of the video is now getting wavy and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. We go back in time. So um, long time ago, I was a venture capitalist. Um, I started a venture firm in New York with a guy named Fred Wilson mm-hmm. called Flatiron Partners. And uh, that was in 1996. That was my second venture capital firm. Um, I did that uh, really through 2001, 2002, I became, I joined JP Morgan Yeah, and then went through my own existential wanderings, uh, came out the other side, a coach, an individual coach, um, started a solo practice, did that for about eight years and then, um, formed with three co-founders three years ago this month. Wow. Uh, we formed uh, Reboot. And so here we are. Can you tell me about that day when you and your co-founders decided that you were going to give this a go and that there was something here to, to turn into Reboot? Well, it was a slow process. It was actually less of a day than it was a year. Yeah. Um, it really began with us, uh, my partner, Ali Schultz, and I, um, working hard first with a couple of other folks, Sam Elmore and Michael Rich, to launch what became our CEO boot camps. And after the second boot camp, and we had, I think, 50, 51 um, applicants for 20 slots, we realized we were onto something, that there was something really strong and powerful about creating a firm that was going to do more than just individual coaching. Yeah. And um, I had been friends with Khalid Halim and Dan Putt for a number of years. The the two of them had been clients of mine. And when I introduced them to Ali and everybody to each other, it became very clear that as a co-partnership, as co-founders, there was something very magical and special about that. And so the plans for the company came together relatively quickly then. Got it. And so um, there are people who are listening to this that are very familiar with executive coaching, have sought out executive coaching for themselves. And then there are others who just sort of see it as this nebulous thing and don't really understand what it is. Uh, Can you draw the line for me between, you know, in the spectrum of 
business advising to therapy, where does executive coaching fall? Right in the middle. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, so a good therapist works on pathology. They work on what's what are the structural, characterological, physiological, mental health challenges that uh, the client is working through. A business advisor, a business mentor focuses on a very sort of pragmatic business approach. What's where should the company go? What's going on? Yeah. What a, what a coach does, what a good coach does is, is use the awareness of our characterological structures to really unlock a person's inherent leadership capabilities. It's obvious when you say it, but it's counterintuitive when you experience it, mm. that the number one impediment to me being the full leader that I have the potential to be are the characterological blocks that I carry away. They might be the belief that I'm an imposter. They might be the belief that I don't have a clue as to what I'm doing. So yeah. how can I even do this job? And really working with those issues is, is a central tenet of coaching. Do those blockers start to come up again and again? Are you seeing the same types of things when you talk with different people? Yes. What I would say is that the blocks that come up as patterns in someone's life are really, really helpful because by first seeing them as a pattern, we start to see that the person is carrying some sort of belief system right. that makes them complicit in not having their full potential realized. What you see from client to client and what you see from population to population is that there are uh, fundamental belief systems that, are, that hold us all back. So, for example, the most famous of which is something like something known as the imposter syndrome. Right, of course. If you think about being the CEO of a hundred person company, and, you know, if you're carrying this characterological structure of the imposter syndrome, the level of anxiety that you're experiencing on a day to day basis could be disabling. Yeah. So let's say that's what I'm dealing with, right? And you're talking me through this, or you're listening to me through this. What helps you move that from a blocker that's identified to something that you can actually act on and do something about? Well, you, you, your question goes at a very important point, which is that cognitive awareness alone doesn't create transformation. Right. Yeah. So just knowing, okay, so yeah, great. So I walk around, I've got the imposter syndrome. What do I do with about right. that? Me too. Right? That Me too. Alone, yeah. Right, right, right. So, so that alone isn't enough. So what you have to do is really work with it. Um, and there, are, and again, there's no, I don't believe in a set methodology, take these five steps. And then at the end, the thing that's blocking you will be gone, but you work with the client, the client works with themselves and they practice the art of seeing the ways in which these things show up in their lives mm -hmm. time and time again, until the point becomes, um, possible for them to be able to start making choices Oh, wait, that voice comes up and says, you know, Megan, you don't know what you're doing. How the hell can you be having this conversation with Jerry? Tell it to stand down, hmm. right? It's okay. So what? Right. And so- you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that work right off the bat? Does it take practice? What, what kind of reactions think? do you get from people what when do you, you tell think? them that? I think that it, it probably doesn't work right off the bat. 
my guess is that it's a nice mechanism, but it, it probably takes some time to stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, these characterological structures get formed early and early on yeah. as childhood survival strategies. And they're designed to keep us safe. And they don't go easily. Yeah. <laughs> right? We have to work with them. Yeah. And that becomes the work of becoming an adult. That becomes the work of stepping into the next phase of our life. So we, we start to expand our capacity to see them when they start to show up. So I, I was doing it with you. Sure. I was imagining what your imposter syndrome might be saying inside of your head. You started to laugh because I bet you, you recognize some of it. Mm -hmm. Took a side glance to my producer's notes. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. And then we just started to play with it. Sure. And instead of trying to beat it down, we just started to kind of be gentle with it. Yeah. And sort of see it. Interesting. What kind of a mindset do you have to be in in order to get the most out of an executive coach? That's a really good question. Um, what occurs to me initially is that there's a feeling of I give up. You know, I, I often tell this story. When I came to Buddhism, uh, I came because I was kind of struggling with my own life. Yeah. And um, the story of the Buddha is that he was born a prince, raised in a castle, became aware of life, ended up becoming a wandering mendicant and student of all these great religious teachers, but it was still frustrated. Right. And the way I think of it is he got so frustrated that one day he just said, ah, to hell with it. I'm going to sit under this tree and not move until I figure it out. And then he woke up to the four noble truths. I think that there's a quality of that. Like I'm going to give up in effect, faking it. Yeah. I'm going to give up pretending and spinning and dancing. And I'm going to admit that I don't have a clue. And I'm going to admit, and I'm going to feel that this is hard. Yeah. And then I'm going to allow myself to look at some tough questions. And I'll see what comes up. At it. So that's the mindset that I would recommend. And that's what happened to you when you shifted careers. Oh, absolutely. Can you take us back to that moment? I, well, here again, it wasn't a moment so much as... Years, right. A few years, yeah. And it certainly wasn't, and I'm going to sit here and figure it out so that I can become a coach and one day launch a company right. called Reboot. It was literally, this is not working anymore. And if I continue down a path of it not working anymore my soul is going to die. Yeah. And I don't exaggerate when I say that I was suicidally depressed. And so for me, therapy alone wasn't enough. I actually had to do my own work. I had to sit under my version of the tree and look in the dark places, look in the places that I'd been avoiding and running really, really fast away from looking at all the things, all the things that whispered at me at night and said, you're an idiot. You're not good enough. You're not lovable. You're not a good man. Right. You think you know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. I had to listen to all of those voices instead of pushing them away and at the risk of them being true. And it turned out that they weren't true. Yeah. 
Here's what's fascinating to me about all of this. You mentioned before that in the spectrum of business advisor to therapist, that executive coaching kind of falls right in the middle. And to me, what's interesting about that is it's almost as if it has to be there, that you couldn't just go to a therapist and solve as an executive and solve some of the issues that you're dealing with because so many of them are in the context of work and that there is this blending that's happened between your personal life and your personal value and the work that you do on a day-to-day basis. Does that feel right to you? Does that feel like you're seeing more people who are, um, you know, the line between work and personal is non-existent? Uh, yes. I hesitate only because of the implication of your question was that it's increasing. I think Mm -hmm. it's always been that way. Really? And I think, I think your point, I think that there is a really important place for therapy. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, I continue to see a therapist. I believe in therapy and I think therapy is the most important tool that we have as a society for helping people with struggling with things like depression and anxiety disorder. No question about that. And there is some space, there is this thing that is around our challenges with leadership and work-related issues that therapists can be very, very helpful with. Mm -hmm. But having the pragmatic and practical experience um, is really important. I mean, based on the line of inquiry here, we've talked mostly about the characterological struggles, the emotional struggles. But understanding, for example, well, how do you actually fire somebody, right? There's two issues associated with that. One line of inquiry is, what does this bring up for me when I contemplate terminating an an employee? And then what is the best way to actually do that, to result in a healthier organization? Those are two different lines of inquiry. Both are really important. Yeah. Both really important for a good coach to work with. So do you think that every business leader should have an executive coach for those circumstances? I think that every business leader should be willing to look at uh, these sorts of questions, whether they use a coach to do this or they use a coach-like peer group or they use um, uh, each other in informal relationships, or they use their therapist. Yes. I think that inherent in the responsibilities of taking on leadership is a commitment to do your own work. And you can do a lot of work on your own, but it's really, really hard. Just like it's hard to cut your hair. Yeah. You can do it, but you'll probably make a mess of it. Right. It's kind of better to go to a barber and get your hair cut. Yeah. Or go to, you know, a hairstylist. And it sounds like this is ongoing work. It's, you know, there there certainly are the times where you hit rock bottom or you you hit that sort of crisis moment and you need to talk to somebody. But it does sound like checking in throughout your career, throughout the difficult decisions that you have is also advised. Yeah, I, I, I think leadership and our relationship to work is a practice, just the way we might practice meditating or practice yoga. Um, and so to support the practice of growing into your leadership, to have tools, and whether it's going to a workshop, going to a retreat, going to a class, um, working with a coach, working in group, 
anything you can do to support the practice of becoming a, a more actualized leader yeah. I think is a, a wise path. Who does this for you today? I have a number of resources. I have uh, my therapist, for example. Mm-hmm. I have uh, one of the things that I'm really fortunate about is that I am surrounded by uh, other coaches in my company and we work together with each other. Um, so I have peers. And then I do drop in uh, occasionally with other people who support me, whether it's my Buddhist teacher or other practitioners and other modalities that support my inquiry process. But I'll say this, my number one support mechanism is my daily journaling practice. Interesting. So in the mornings you get up, you sit down and you journal. Is there a... I do. I I wake, I make coffee, and I journal, usually for an hour, sometimes longer. And, And, you know... Monday and Tuesday of this week, I was struggling with some really difficult, self-critical, self-loathing feelings. And it took me to Wednesday morning to understand what the roots of those feelings were. Once I was able to write about what those feelings were, and I, I spent some time thinking about my, my dreams and what was going on, I was able to then speak to the person involved about what was going on and released myself from the self-loathing. Hmm. That's all skills I learned in therapy, but I'm doing on my own. And there's a discipline to it. So yes. how can somebody else start to build that discipline and that routine into their schedule that allows room for journaling and for meditation, for example? So can we just play? Because I, I get tired of answering questions, so I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> sure what, is the, what is the implicit statement behind your question? And, your, and I'll just repeat parts of the question. How can somebody create the discipline to put that into their day? What's the implicit belief behind that? That it's hard and there's no time. Right. So notice the no time. Notice what happened to your voice when you said there's no time. Megan, do you struggle to find time for things like that in your day? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So notice that. Notice that. Sure. Right. So I'm going to repeat back to you, but slightly alter it. So there's a feeling that you have, which is that something like a daily meditation practice or a daily journaling practice might be something really helpful. Is that right? Absolutely. And yet you don't have time for it. Yep. That's what you're hearing. So what you're saying to me is you don't have time to help yourself. That is magic. That's some, that's some Jedi stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. So... That's a choice. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's not a choice because it's an embedded character logical belief system, which is that it's more important to fill in the blank than it is to take care of myself. Now, without judging it, notice it. Sure. And notice it until the point comes when you can actually make a choice. So then the choices become what's less important than that. Yes. And the choice, so, so notice, so what we just did was cognitive awareness, mm-hmm. right? The coach reflected back to you the words that you had just said. Yeah. And then we went one step further and said, well, what's actually the belief system there? And it's that process that most people miss. They don't, they presume that certain things are simply true. There's not enough time in the day. Well, that's actually not a truth. That's a belief. 
Right. Right. Because there are things that you probably do every day that feel like they're really important, but may in fact be a reflection of other beliefs. Like I spend time with this other person giving to this other person because giving to them is more important than giving to me. Yes. Now, without judging whether that's tr- that's right, all I'm going to say is that that's a choice. Right. And even that has implications, right? So maybe you could give to them in a better way if you had taken the time to journal that morning or had um, taken the, the time to think through the conversation you were going to have with them. That's right. That's right. And I'll go one step further. Your listeners are probably not even capable of choosing to spend some time in the morning journaling. One of the questions I'll ask them is, did you have a, did you take a drink of water today? Did you have lunch? Did you have breakfast? Right. Right. And I just want to reflect back. Oftentimes they'll say no. And I'll say, well, wait a minute. How are you spending your day when you're not actually even putting food in your body? Well, I had a cup of coffee. It's like, that's not food. Sure. How much of your advice is telling people to look at their prioritization and cut things out of their schedule and, and refocus where they spend that valuable asset of time? Does it always come down to that? I think it always comes down to something a little bit larger than what you just described. I think what you just described is a subset of a larger issue. Hmm. The larger issue boils down to this question. What kind of adult do I want to be? What kind of leader, what kind of company do I want to work for? What are my values? Who am I as a person? What do I value about the world. These sorts of questions are questions which I put in the category of radical self-inquiry. Yeah. Because we're so busy doing that we actually don't take the time to notice the choices that we have implicitly made. And we just go. And then we die. And just before we die, we say, what the hell happened to my life? Yeah. And I don't want people to live like that. So I have an agenda and that's the agenda. I want people to be conscious. What I often say is if you're going to merge your sense of self with your job, please do so consciously. Don't do it because you are running away from a negative view of your own self. Do you run into people over the course of this work that are maybe even just temporarily kind of uncoachable because they're unable to make those decisions or not open to it? Sure. Sure. Um, what I would say is that they're, they're, they're not ready yet, or they are too defended, but, but usually what the, the, the setup goes like this, someone calls or re, or reaches out to us, you know, on the website through the inquiry form or something and says, my wife is really struggling. Could you find someone who could coach her? Okay, what's wrong with that picture? It's not the woman herself. That's right. That's right. So even though the spouse is saying, you know, yes, uh, you're right, I need a coach. What's really going on is someone's trying to fix somebody somewhere. And as we often say, we're not in the fix it business. We don't fix people. Hmm. We help people who want to work on their own lives. So the same thing happens with, you know, I get a, I have a lot of friends in the venture business. And I was so we get just going to say that from, 
yeah, we get we get board members who say, you know, I have a CEO who's struggling, and I say, great, have the CEO reach out. Yeah, so if that's a prerequisite. If they're not willing to reach out, then they're not willing to be helped. That's a line. Yep, that makes sense. So you deal a lot with CEOs. What, what about earlier in the career, though? I mean, if somebody is a, a mid-level manager or just getting started, is executive coaching something that is a worthwhile investment for someone developing? I think so. I mean, that's it's one of the reasons why as a firm, we don't speak. There are many coaches who say, I only coach CEOs. We don't do that. We don't believe in that. In fact, what just popped into my mind is many years ago when I was a solo coach, I had a very full practice and through a friend of a friend, this young, young guy came in and he was a first time entrepreneur and he was so filled with self-criticism. He kept saying, I don't deserve to be coached by you. Hmm. Well, I just broke down into tears and I was like, there's no way you're not going to be coached by me. Not, not when you have that attitude. Right. He and made you he, cry. Uh, absolutely. They make me cry all the time. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And he said, you know, well, I, I can't afford it. I said, well, how much can you afford? He said, well, how about $75? I said, done, sold. And the point was just this. I believe that we as human beings have a beautiful responsibility of helping each other. And it's unfortunate that I don't have the time in my schedule anymore to be able to do this, but I would like anybody and everybody who is able to or willing to be coached to at least be able to join a, a peer group or to go to a workshop or to, you know, from, from, from what Reboot offers, even take one of our free courses. It's one of the reasons why we offer so much for free is that I really believe in the quality and the, and the importance of this work. You've mentioned the peer group a couple of times. How does somebody know whether they should get one-on-one -on -one counseling and coaching versus talk with a peer group? Good question. I think that uh, they can be very complimentary. I have been in a peer group for 16 years, for example, mm. um, and that is in conjunction with my individual work. Reboot has this um, service called Reboot Circles, which are coach-facilitated peer groups. And many of the members of those groups use the peer group because it's more accessible. It's, a, it's less expensive yeah. than individual coaching. But many of the folks who have individual coaching also join a peer group because you get something similar, but you also get something different. What's really important about a good peer group is that you're not fixing that it's not, it's not five other people telling you what's wrong with you, Megan. Yeah. And here's what you should do. All right. So you've heard a lot of stories over the years. You've helped a lot of people of all different levels. Would you say, just as sort of a final thought here, are you getting more optimistic about the state of executives and the, the state of business? Or how has your perspective changed on, on the people you're helping? I think that the issues remain the same, but I think the difference is that there is an increasing awareness and openness to talking about what the struggles are. And I think that that makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, what we're really working against is shame. And shame stops a lot of people from getting the help that they need. And the result is that we have organizations that are really kind of screwed up. 
Whereas if we can overcome the shame by recognizing that we're all learning on the job every single day and get help, then all of a sudden we create organizations that are healthier. And that makes me happy. Makes perfect sense. All right, Jerry. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I wish you a very happy sabbatical. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.